0: Hello, I'm Professor Anna-Marie Jargos, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. Welcome to this Sydney Ideas conversation. Welcome to those who are joining us live online and to those listening on the podcast later. COVID anxiety is the title of our panel today and truly who hasn't felt it? Even those of us who were quite relaxed several months ago perhaps are now more familiar with the notion of COVID anxiety. It's a weird and precarious time, a time of great uncertainty across the world. I've found myself using the word unprecedented more times in the last week than I've probably used it in my life. We're grappling with constant and sometimes confusing and contradictory messages, and trying to work out what does this mean for our health, for the people we love, for our communities, our jobs, our futures. Today in this conversation, we're going to do our best to make sense of the rapidly shifting COVID-19 events by bringing together academic experts from different disciplines to think beyond the physical health ramifications to issues of mental health, anxiety, communication, and general sense-making aspects. Let me introduce our panelists today. Professor Nick Enfield is a Professor of Linguistics, looking at language, culture, cognition, and social life. Professor Ian Hickey is a leading expert in public health and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre. Claire Hooker has a number of research areas, but most pertinent to our conversation is her expertise in politics, ethics, and history of infection control. Professor Agnieszka Taimula's research combines methodologies from economics, psychology, and neurosciences for a better understanding of how people make decisions. And our fifth panelist, Professor Julie Leisk, public health researcher, focusing on vaccination and infectious disease risk communication with a background in public health, nursing, and midwifery. So Nick, starting with you, Why is how we talk about coronavirus so important?
1: As a linguist, obviously, I'm crucially interested in uh, the role of language in all of this. And to my mind, um, what's important is that all of the information that we are trying to make sense of, that we're drawing on, is packaged uh, using language in one way or another. People around the world are reading about this uh, in different languages. Uh, in Within a single language, we're getting our information from different sources. Some are experts, some are not. We might be looking at uh, information coming from within medicine, or we might be just hearing uh, the opinions of somebody we know on Facebook. So we have this flood of information, uh, and we need to make sense of it. So from my point of view, thinking about the role that language plays is really crucial. Um, And and what I want to sort of emphasize here in relation to anxiety and so on is the need for mindfulness around the words that we see being used in uh, in all of this information. So to to give a couple of examples, um, we've read about whether um, COVID-19 cases, you know, who do they affect? How serious Are they for any given individual? What's the likelihood of serious illness or death? Uh, And we've seen descriptions of the number of cases that are mild. So uh, we might be reassured by the use of the word mild, but uh, when we look a little bit more closely in certain contexts, this term has been used for cases which, in fact, for everyday people, we would consider to be extremely serious. They would include cases where people have been hospitalized, but perhaps um, you know, not using a ventilator or in ICU. So they would be very dreadful uh, physical experiences, but could be technically still classified as mild. So um, that would be one example. And I think there are other cases, other kinds of terms, many, in fact, that we could discuss as we go along today, terms like social distancing, uh, terms like extreme measures for the kinds of um, measures we're all taking at the moment where in fact, there are some really quite different understandings of what these terms mean. And we we really don't wanna have confusion, which we clearly are currently experiencing. We really do want people to be calibrated and to have a common understanding about about what our decisions mean. And so as individuals, what I wanna uh, emphasize is that people should be mindful, which means pausing when we see a certain framing being used a certain term being used taking a step back and trying to think where's this term coming from who's using it what's the context and through that a little moment of pause and a bit of mindfulness about the language we see we can uh begin to make better decisions which you know hopefully will uh, allow us to 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 act more rationally so
0: that's great nick um good to see that emphasis on mindfulness and certainly i'm sure we're all um Mindful at the minute of uh, specialist vocabularies that are uh, leaking out into the everyday and being taken up in different ways, which maybe um, makes a good um, pitch across to uh, Claire hooker. Claire, can I ask you what can we learn from epidemics in the past? what does history teach us?
2: Oh um, history teaches us unfortunately um, some many grim lessons um, on many occasions we do see that um even a small amount of negative language can easily coalesce, for example around um, places or types of people who might be particularly feared. So the history of epidemics unfortunately has often, exposed many of the fractures that exist in societies themselves. In in our case, um, there has been rightfully concern, for example, at how easily we all dismissed um, or many of us dismissed um, COVID-19 as something that would only impact the elderly, as if the elderly were not our own beloved parents and grandparents, elders and leaders in so many ways, uh, as one example of how that shows or perhaps exposes um, broader dismissive attitudes towards the elderly across society. But part of what I would like to say today, too, is that they also give us the opportunity to uh, pay attention to and dwell on our strengths that despite many concerns, we see so many Australians taking the government's advice on trust, um, distancing themselves physically, turning their lives upside down in an effort to contribute to the greater good of all of us surviving this as best we can. And those wonderful moments of care and solidarity are as important or perhaps some of the most important aspects of this experience as are many factors that tend to exacerbate our fears.
0: Thanks, Claire. Look, it's really interesting to hear you talk about, um, in the COVID-19 context, um, the importance of acting for the greater good, which um, leads me to ask uh, Ian a question. Um, Ian, this is obviously a complex time for people's mental health, and you're on record as saying that there is value in being anxious but pro-social.
3: Yes, that's my message. Anxious is good to say, calm down, don't worry, is entirely unhelpful in the current situation. We are all worried, the immediate threat, the impact on our lives, the social dislocation that is happening. And in the danger of the self-isolating language is to imply that we act more individually and we're alone. And then people get overwhelmed and feel helpless. It's actually a time to behave collectively and smart. In your own local communities that keeps you safe and the people you care about as is just being emphasized whether the elderly the pregnant the young your partners your kids whatever collective action so the messages need to turn into smart local collective action we'd be pro-social now anxiety orientates you towards responses if it goes the wrong way and gets overwhelming people become helpless and engage in antisocial actions, hence the panic buying, strip the supermarkets, keep people from my door type ideas, or in the United States, buy guns type ideas in the extreme. In Australia, we have traditionally had a history of volunteerism, of collective social action, of not relying on central government or being told by central government, but actually behaving collectively. So we've got to think through, and next issues is about words matter here, when we say physically isolating we need to say but more socially connected and more acting as groups to be pro social as we face the collective threat we're all in it together the we not the i needs to dominate the response so a lot of the communications at the moment from government and from health agencies are very simplistic wash your hands do what you do in a sense just what don't cough etc as distinct from it, matters what we all do. And some of the problems I think we're having at the moment of simply telling people what to do, miss the collective. So the rest of us have to think, hang on, hang on, not just do what do I do, but how do I behave in the most connected social way? Because we're humans, we do care about each other and we behave most effectively and faced with threat when we behave collectively.
0: That's great, Ian. I really am um, picking up on that um, strong message about thinking about the we, not the I. Um, And that also lets me bridge very nicely across to Agnieszka, because in your comment around the way in which anxiety orients you to responses, um, I think we have been thinking a lot about decision making, our own decision making on an individual basis, and then collective decision making at community and governmental levels. So Agnieszka, can I ask you a little bit, um, what are the features of human behaviour that you would see very visibly operational in people's decision-making processes in a COVID-19 context?
4: Yes. So, um, you know, as a researcher studying behavior, I'm now witnessing this fascinating, from a research point of view only, massive world-scale uh, decision-making experiment. And, you know, not that I like that the coronavirus happened, but we are learning a lot about human behavior in extreme situations. And I have to say that what we are seeing is not that people suddenly started behaving, making these decisions in different ways, um, but rather we see the same um, behavioral patterns like aversion to losses, aversion to uncertainty, following the crowds when we don't know what to do, but they are just magnified um, by the coronavirus. Um, And there are good behaviors and there are bad behaviors, of course, as researchers and policymakers, we are interested more in understanding the, the ones that reduce people's well-being, so that we can um, understand how to mitigate them. Um, and I think they, they mostly relate to these ideas of loss aversion and aversion of uh, uncertainties. I think that what all of us could do is actually um, stop for a second and um, try to think what drives our decisions. And this introspection and awareness of the mechanisms that drive our own behavior, I believe, would help us make better decisions and would put us in a better place as a society.
0: That's fantastic, Igniska. I think the thing about decision making uh, and making it kind of transparent to oneself is really important. And a number of um, panelists, yourself included, have uh, pointed to the importance of. Uh, feelings of uncertainty and ambiguity and how to uh, orient oneself uh, correctly in such a confusing environment. Julie, I'd like to um, turn finally to you to ask, when we're faced with uncertainty and ambiguity, uh, how should we best talk about and communicate in such contexts? Well, the first thing is that the people who are doing the risk
5: communication need to acknowledge uh, ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, They're dealing with a great deal of uh, uncertainty in a technical sense. Uh, You know, the knowledge about this virus is very rapidly evolving. So the way it spreads, whether there's transmission between people who are from someone who doesn't have symptoms and so forth, these are all really important questions that have um, implications for our everyday lives uh, and yet a lot still not known and that means that the messages uh, the inconsistency in the messages has a temporal nature so they change over time and they have a jurisdictional inconsistency because we're dealing with states and territories and a federal government and they have an action word inconsistency when we see things that politicians say, for example, like, don't panic or stay calm or there's nothing to worry about, all quotes from politicians in the last few weeks, and yet what's actually happening is a major disruption to our daily lives. And even though it's uncomfortable, the best way to do that, we know from studying risk communication during health emergencies is to acknowledge uncertainty, Um, tell people what you do know, what you don't know. Um, tell them how much to worry and give them some rationale behind the decisions you're making. Uh, all the way along, uh, acknowledging that those decisions may change because you're still coming to terms with what is known about this virus and the
0: way it behaves in populations. That's great, Julie. So so let's um, open up to the broad um, panel conversation now, I think uh, our audience hopefully gets a sense of the specific sort of disciplinary expertise that you're all bringing to the conversation. Um, There's been a number of comments made across those introductory statements uh, about the way that there is no one simple message, and yet across the world we see governments trying to... uh, pass simple messages into populations, trying to control or um, encourage certain forms of behaviour and discourage others. And I think we see individuals um, struggling a lot to understand what might be the best situation or the best response from them. How can we think about this, perhaps going back to you, Ian, and your notion of the the collective um, over the individual? What, What are the ways that people can bridge the gap Um, between their own imperfect knowledge and the knowledges that Julie points out are necessarily imperfect because we don't have a complete kind of knowledge understanding of the situation that is evolving temporarily pretty quickly. This is
3: such an interesting thing because we have, I think sort of old century, centralised, one correct voice will tell you what to do. But actually, people learn what to do by sharing information and testing with each other. I heard this, you heard that, we talk about it, what does it mean, what should we do in relation to it? As people access different levels of information, those who are more savvy and and more interested in where the raw data comes from want to see more transparency how they then explain that with the people they live with with the people they work with they interact with becomes really important so we normally resolve these things actually through conversations now we have lots of technologies lots of ways of doing that so i found it fascinating lots of politicians say get off twitter get off facebook don't talk don't share I'd say the reverse, get on there, say what you're misunderstanding, somebody else can clarify you. No, 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 it didn't mean that, it meant this. You know, in the certain situation you're in at the moment, like the completely confusing set of messages about going to school, going to childcare or not, what does it mean in your community? More information that's powerful and transparent and then transacted within the society. Julie's point about lack of certainty is really important. This is a dynamic evolving situation the situation in Australia is not the same as internationally the situation in different parts of Australia is different there are different clusters there's those who've been exposed what you need to do as a community is work through that and the people who know more share more but we all talk about it so what is it we're worrying about in our head what's my misunderstanding what's my misinterpretation of what was just said so we can work that through and that requires the fabulous use of the interactive medias like we're doing now people got different perspectives that can share them that then result in the most useful action but also promote that there are useful actions not just panic so I think what we're seeing is that a lot of public health messaging as done by government central etc hasn't moved into the 21st century isn't interactive doesn't allow people to ask questions and clarify what does that mean what happens in public transport? You know, should we all get off or not? Or what happens What happens with school? Should we all get off or not? Simple, Ian, black and white, absolute answers.
2: Ian, I really... Don't fit. I really... Um, so we're all going to acknowledge at this moment that it's quite hard to... Um um, interject in Zoom in the Zoom environment. So, our collective apology for the in apparent interruptions. But, Ian, I was enjoying what you were saying so much because um, it reminded me of the fine grained information that social media and um, Uh, communal context provided in bushfires. And uh, many people similarly want something more. They want fires near me, but they want the fine-grained local information that added context and detail beyond fires near me so that they could make the right sets of decisions that were pertinent and relevant and salient for their particular situations. And I think, indeed, we see exactly this really strong, um, reliable sense making process occurring um, through the channels that people can access.
1: And I also um, add to that, that I, I, I think it's, there's a question about the populations within which information flows. And one of the kind of downsides of social media is that we're exposed to claims, we're exposed to views that come from Um, people who we've never met who we never will meet and sometimes that's absolutely fine but other times it's hard to get checks and balances uh, on the kind of information that we're getting whereas when you bring things down to the local level you're dealing with people who you will deal with again in the future who you've dealt with in the past Um, people's reputation uh, matters more and basically our levels of trust go up a lot more. So I think that um, there's really interesting effects of that kind of lo- uh, more local community exchange of information. And I've already started experiencing this. I've just had a people in my um, neighbourhood set up a, a, a community sort of uh, web page where we can communicate with each other about who needs flour and sugar and that kind of thing. So... I think that there's very interesting effects of levels of trust uh, around information, coming back to Ian's point of uh, being able to use social media as a as a source of information where discussions can happen.
0: So maybe I can pick up on that and ask the panel to um, speak about the fact that we are negotiating in a crisis situation a very complex, multi-leveled communicative structure, um, perhaps uh structured across the coordinates of trust on the one hand as, as nick you're speaking of now but also panic um, as ian has mentioned uh, trust and panic are two um, very sort of galvanizing um, feelings how do we negotiate uh, the, com- the very complicated communication environment um, if we're sort of oscillating between those two
3: so mistrust mistrust and social dislocation will lead to panic unreliable messaging don't know who to trust don't know who's reliable and non-transparency in that situation is important so unfortunately we've been in a world where the degree of global trust has deteriorated degrees of local trust have deteriorated polarization of views has become common so this is a real test of the social fabric locally who do you trust i think we're very lucky in australia with things like the national broadcasting service we have we've had trusted information sources allowing those to interact with local systems, as Nick was just emphasising, and as Julie was emphasising, in real time, letting people know what are the sort of issues that are in consideration and that there are systems that are actually operating to take best international learning, best evidence has been evidence through this panel, what do we know from the past, what do we know from other research, and then help that into local action. If it remains too high level, too depersonalised, doesn't actually help me to know whether I should go to school today, take public transport today, meet with friends today, why different rules in different situations, then mistrust and panic goes up. People just retreat to knee-jerk responses. So I think it is a really interesting situation that we've got, on the one hand, the upside of new technologies connectedness. On the downside, we're not operating in a period of great social trust. So I think the community issue is exactly as Nick emphasised. How do you re-establish that and it's mainly with people you're already connected with and then sharing that information, workshopping that information yourself and being open to discussing what is causing you anxiety, what is causing you fear, what is the likelihood that the next thing will happen, how, how wrong is you? The fires near us example, I'm one of those people who thinks we should have an app virus near us, not on its own, but in combination with the other sources.
5: So can I, can I um, just dip in there and it's Julie here and say that Uh, When we're thinking about uh, sustaining trust, um, we're thinking about the responsibilities of a number of different institutions. And trust is really important to sustain in a a crisis like this. It's your number one resource for maintaining community cooperation. Um, So there's just... I I do have some thoughts
0: around the different institutions who are responsible for that, but over to you, Anne-Marie. So I was just going to feed into the conversation a comment um, made from our live audience <clears throat> um, from Kate Beer, who introduces herself as a community-based uh, crisis counsellor uh, with a psychology background and she's pointing out that she's often having to produce information packs for different groups and she customises them um, for her perception of how willing they are to receive detailed information or perhaps more for, for a, a younger audience or perhaps a more sort of effective reassurance for older audiences. It, this makes me um, think about the ways in which an infectious disease, um, whatever its um, epidemiological kind of construct, is a scary proposition for a lot of people, um, partly because it crosses or almost um, violates the social boundaries that we often set up for ourselves in our everyday lives, the people that we feel comfortable, um, say, cohabiting with, are strangers on the street, um, or n- different national pop- populations imagined as threats or otherwise. Is there a way in which we could engage as a panel um, about the way in which infectious diseases, you know, their very, the very notion of, you know, what we call community transmission, um, injects a sort of anxiety into the structural forms that usually we find
3: reassuring? Anna Marie, that's such a great question because you can't help it cognitively when faced with an invisible threat to start to try and make sense. Humans have a sense to make sense, if only and to believe that they can be in control. So this really challenges the cognitive processes and the social processes of humans. Most other threats, like the bushfires or certain kinds of things or wars or you can see who it is. You can identify the other. You can retreat to your own social group so the trust amongst your own group goes up because you have the belief, whether it's true or not, that you can actually protect and add in a particular way. In this particular situation, you have to actually overcome that and see everybody as being affected, you know, rather than trying to say it's a Chinese virus or it's Asians or it's those who just got off the boat from the US or some other particular thing or, the, you know, my friends don't have it but the other random man in the street does, you know, so it's really challenges our cognitive and normal social responses so it's actually the invisible nature of it the unknowing nature of it is something that causes extreme anxiety because it's a directly contrary to our inbuilt instincts cognitively and socially which is why it's so important to have this kind of rational discussion if you like unless we take care of all of us we are all at risk
1: I also just wanted to pick up a little bit on the question about um, cognition and the kinds of challenges there uh, and turning it back to some of this, this sort of questions of mindfulness that I started out with. I think one of the big challenges is for people to learn about their own kind of cognitive foibles, if you like, and the and the ways in which we tend to respond to things um, using, you know, sometimes flawed cognition or, or our limitations in some sense, uh,
0: there are Nick's sound is breaking up a little bit there, I'm afraid.
5: While we while we get Nick back, I might just uh, come in there and comment that, you know, uh, uh, often we think of um, people's um, sort of fast thinking, you know, that 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 thinking when we're fearful and anxious as as being um, a kind of bias, and it can lead to these heuristics or mental shortcuts when we're thinking quickly can lead to predictable biases, but they can also be useful in uh, helping us uh, um, make snap judgments. And, you know, they're, if you think in evolutionary terms, they're uh, argued to be one way we've survived is to be able to think quickly and get away from danger. But I, I'd like to draw this discussion about um, how we sustain trust to focus on the institutional responsibilities and one is the mass media uh, and another is the government and the way they interact together because all the things that we've discussed so far so the the importance of language for example the the way images are used can make very powerful um, messages for people so if you know as Ian said if we if we you know, as Trump is calling this the the China virus, which is a terribly toxic kind of language and will deeply stigmatise people um, for for years to come, as we've learned from the SARS experience. Uh, It's very important that leaders pay careful attention to their language, that we do frame things as having community benefit, that we um, make sure that when we're putting an image alongside words that we don't co-locate particular population groups and contribute to further stigmatisation because as editors we've got our own fast subconscious biases and and also the responsibility of government to work well with the mass media and meet the needs of the media and that relates to that issue of transparency giving good rationale and and, um, maybe taking a little bit more time between decisions and communication of those for a little bit more engagement so that the decision making doesn't become overwhelmed with politics, which will lead to more
4: mistrust. So um, maybe let me jump in here um, after Julie, from behavioral economics perspective. I have to say, I totally agree that um, media played a really big role in um, things that um, actually touched on all of us, like panic buying, because it um, kind of helped um, fuel um, the fear in people that they will be actually losing um, access to uh, things that they've been taking grant- for granted for um, forever, like you know, basic necess- necessities like um, pasta and food and, um, and other things um and w- and when that happens is um people actually due to loss of reason, start um demanding and and wanting to buy more of the products that they fear that they might lose access to and they're willing to pay more for them um you must have noticed in your local score- stores that um now pasta can sell for five times as much as it used to and people are still buying this And that's because this messaging in the media has been very much around people losing access to um, the basic um, goods that they use uh, every day. And I just want to say one more thing that I don't think that it's um, our brain training to mash potato because of the coronavirus and us suddenly becoming completely irrational when we're making our decisions. I think we're actually responding rationally to our beliefs about what will be available. And if the beliefs are that uh, you know, certain goods will not be available in the future, then we want to purchase them to make sure we have them.
0: That's great, and I think Agnieszka and Julie, your two comments around um, behaviors, but also behaviors that are driven by um, communication hierarchies, I guess, whether mass media or governmental or the kind of um, synergistic sort of connection between those two um, connects nicely to another comment uh, question, actually, that a, a audience member, Julianne, is asking. Um, here she's imagining herself as a, as a communicator, in this case, a communicator inside a family structure to her own kids. So again, in a swirl of adult communication, a lot of us are also in positions, role holders, or perhaps familial roles where we find that we have to communicate um, in uncertainty and ambiguity. And Julianne's particular question is, you know, she's got kids at home and she's saying, they're asking her, how long will we be at home from school and away from our friends? And she's finding it hard to know how to answer in an honest way, perhaps in the way, Julie, that you emphasised at the start where transparency was an important goal.
5: Yeah, it's funny, actually. Claire and I were talking with each other yesterday about this. Claire, you might want to elaborate. But that idea of, uh, of government giving the public a sense of what will trigger the reopening of schools, the opening of borders again. It's not going to happen for a long time now. Uh, we don't know how long, but at least knowing what will trigger those decisions and what factors will be made and weighed up because there is a lot of weighing of risk and benefit um, will help people have some sense of uh, predictability and will reduce the risk that decisions are confounded by politics. Claire.
2: Yes, I'd like to say a couple of things on that. Um, My first comment is um, uh, speaking as a mother worried that at any moment her children will come bursting into this webinar through the door behind me. I've had that conversation this very morning, how long will this last? And um, my um, best response to that is to use a picture because a picture lets us at least lay out on a number line where the dimensions of uncertainty might lie. If the peak might be somewhere between May and July, then we can start to set our expectations in a range of dates a little bit further along. So, I, one of the things that I've noticed is that many people are sharing on social media simple and effective visual graphics that let us get some sense of tangibility around the abstract notions, such as what an exponential curve looks like, that everybody needs to access. And somebody said to me yesterday, why isn't the government providing us with these simple graphics to explain some aspects of their planning? And I think that's a really good question, because it could help us put some parameters Around uncertainty, as Julie was just suggesting. Anna Marie, you had a comment on that.
0: So I think um, really good connections that uh, Julie and Claire are making there around, um, as you just said, Claire, putting parameters around uncertainty. Um, Julie's suggestion, which I think um, has a, a weight of uh, risk communication expertise behind it is to point out that when you don't have an answer because it's not knowable, i.e. a child's question of how long before we can go back to school and see our friends, you might nevertheless, in a transparent and useful way, be able to point to some indicators that will arise in order for that thing to become possible. Claire, you've also brought in, I think, the um, idea of social media. Uh, And I think, you know, anyone who has any kind of um, social media profile at the moment, and perhaps even if you have absolutely none and are only reading the mass media, would understand how much social media is being energized variously by COVID-19 discussions. Um, Kate Bear is our audience member back on um, the chat line to talk about the ways in which um, some social media responses are very strongly driven by cynicism because, seeing a lot of ambiguity and uh, contradiction in the messages. Um, The example she gives is that, you know, we're talking about physical distancing, but the schools are still open. So people feel, well, that's just nobody's messaging properly. We can just be cynical and make kind of jokes about it. Are there ways in which the panel thinks it is useful to respond to a cynical um, or sarcastic or uh, I guess undermining responses to ambiguity? I think we need
5: to. Or I, th- I actually think the role is for the communicators here. We've got um, different leaders who are doing variable jobs with their um, communication, uh, and in any in a, in a sense, I'd love to see a communicator in chief. You know, someone who's very knowledgeable, um, has uh, um, very good communication skills, like some of the examples we've seen from, so the Victorian Chief Health Officer, the um, Singapore PM, uh, Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand PM. Uh, And and each of, you know, everybody, uh, the, the communicators are human beings. So it's not as if bad communication is a reflection of somebody who just doesn't care. Sometimes people do actually care, but they lack the communication skills to show that they care. And so the task of government right now is to um, sustain and perhaps regain a little bit of trust. And for that to happen, I think would require a bit of a revolution in the way things are going right now. And for, um, to be honest, for the Prime Minister to take advice on good risk communication and listen to it, and do work inwardly to um, address his own clear frustration, about the behaviours that he's seeing and not liking, and get a bit of understanding of behavioural science and how to communicate with people in a way that's compelling and draws cooperation rather than division. Um, Julie
2: and I have worked together on um, risk communication and we know that for more than 20 years any uh, risk communication manuals such as those that have been published by the WHO or the CDC since the early 1990s emphasize that risk communication is a two-way process. It's about actively listening to your impacted constituents and key stakeholders and addressing their concerns on their terms, rather than telling them what to do or what to think. If you don't do that, what tends to happen is that people move into distrust and then outraged. And when they become outraged, all the research shows very clearly, they stop being able to listen to you. They don't process information well, and they respond from the perspective of their outrage. That's what we've seen happen in a by-the-book way with respect to the school closures. Nobody talked to key stakeholders who were teachers and parents, teachers particularly. No-one asked what they needed or to feel safe or how to manage their environments and their work tasks effectively. Instead, the message was sent to them that they could just be pushed out into a situation outside of their control in order to allow healthcare workers to go to, to work. And that devaluing of a teacher 's role was an absolutely strong driver for outrage, which led people to focus on apparent inconsistencies in the messages, such as why can 't we gather? why are we not allowing people to gather in crowds unless they are so called children and is someone sixteen a child, or do they magically have a higher viral road load on their eighteenth birthday? Those sorts of inconsistencies in fact, all of those Um, decisions and policies had rationales behind them that were well worth listening to, but we have pushed ourselves into a position where our mistrust and outrage makes it almost impossible to hear the complexity in the rationale, which is what we actually need to be able to cohere around. And Ian has something to say on that point, I think.
3: Well, just to pick up, I think the key thing here is for all the people in the public arena, don't do what I say, do what I do. Pick up a point of is saying. If you see there's panic in the supermarkets and the worry is about food supply, then you need to see the political leaders surrounded by the supermarkets and all those people in the food say there is no food shortage in Australia. We can manage that okay? through partnerships. If you want to see collective social action, you need to see all of our political leaders and social leaders engaging together to solve the immediate problems that we are worried about in particular ways. What we tend to see is every single person on their own in a you know, press conference or a media conference giving their particular view about what you should do and probably waving their finger at you at the same time, even though the messages themselves may be inconsistent. If you wanna show what to do, if you want people to do what you do, show what to do. So in the political situation through the parliament, through other areas, and you are seeing examples of this overseas, people actually physically isolating, but socially connecting. People providing collective social responses on the key issues that Agnestia was highlighting, the things that people's behaviour tells you they're worrying about. If it's food supply, if it's certain other sets of issues, show how to do it and model the behaviour. We've had the ridiculous situation of keeping four metres apart but saying it's fine this week for the AFL and the NRL to carry on having players crawl over each other, as if that's somehow exempt in a particular way. You know, you've got to show what it is collectively that you want people to do and model that and not waste a lot of time on the wisdom and and the behavior that's evident in the community will tell you you know the Bondi Beach example over the weekend people are clearly ignoring it show what to do
0: it's been a fantastic discussion across our panelists I'm going to just give you all one last opportunity here um, to dig deep and think about what might be your best tip or your most succinct advice for listeners wanting to make informed decisions about how best to manage in the coming days, weeks, and very likely months?
4: So, um, I think, you know, we can't control what the politicians will be telling us and what messages we will be getting through the social media. So, it's important that we are aware how we make decisions. Um, So, we've been talking a lot today about minimizing uncertainty, a small chance of Something bad happening is terrifying. But if we manage to narrow down the odds to some range, uh, we will. It will be less terrifying, and we will make better decisions, more informed decisions, based on uh, a number that we some, somehow uh, constrained. Um, second thing that I wanted to say is that very often the same problem can be framed in two different ways: in loss game, uh, loss frame, or in gain frame. We can be talking about losing lives and about saving lives. Um, these frames make a big difference, uh, so be aware that um, you have tendency to overweigh losses relative to gains and sometimes try to reframe scenarios and see what you would do um, if you framed it another way. And last thing that I wanted to say is, um, as I was watching um, panic buying um, in Australia, I think many people did not think about the opportunity cost of their time, the time that they spent um, buying pasta and um you know trivial cheap goods, while at the same time they did not think about their retirement savings um, because that was not um you know that was not on the media, so they were not reacting this other and they were instead following the crowd and you know uh, <laughs> buying too much uh, of the pasta. So I always try to stop and think, what's the opportunity cost of the action that I'm taking now?
5: I'd like to pick up on Agnieszka's um, points there in terms of the gain frame. I actually find this really helpful. If you you look at the data from Wuhan, over 44,000 people diagnosed with um, COVID-19, 81% of them had mild disease. Now, what that actually meant um, was that they had a fever, a cough, um, respiratory symptoms, but they didn't have to go to hospital. They might have had a bit of breathlessness, but that was as bad as it got. Um, Of course, uh, then 19% did have more severe disease. So we could think, gosh, you know, this is really scary. 19% had more severe disease, and that is scary. There's no doubt about that. But the fact that 81% had mild disease um, is, is I think an example of how you can use gain frame to think differently about risk, what, whatever that is. So I, I think also in terms of going into the next months and managing this and the enormous disruption that people are encountering in their daily lives, um, losing jobs under um, 21% are saying they'll have severe financial stress from this. Uh, Some of the just the very simple individual things we can do um, I sort of summarised as an A, B, C, D, E, F which I can um, briefly go through. So A is for being aware of how you're feeling and and, um, how you're responding and knowing that it's normal to be sad, stressed, confused and B is for being healthy and all the things that come with that and C is for coping constructively. So using typical methods that you deal um, that you use to deal with stress and trying to avoid unhelpful um, methods like drinking to excess. D is for distancing yourself from media coverage that you find stressful um, and giving yourself a bit of a break from the topic. E is for educating yourself by going to a reputable source, something that you trust. It might be the government department website. It might be an Aboriginal health community controlled um, health organisation. And F is for family and community. And that's the looking after each other element and the looking out for each other element. So social distancing doesn't have to be social. It can just be physical and we can still connect on the phone. More um, uh, last night, my mum and my my husband and I started singing from the score of the messiah and and it felt like the seventies growing up as a kid where we used to gather around the piano, except we were using YouTube for our accompaniment so you know back to some old ways for us that um, maybe we 'll discover some different and fun things that we we haven 't done for a while because we 've been so absorbed in our screens so They're just some thoughts that I had.
3: I think the key thing at the moment is we. If we behave collectively, we'll save lives now and we'll save the economy in the future. The more the I bit, just save myself, becomes dominant, then the social fabric will be further tested and deteriorate. More lives will be lost and the economic future will be worse. So that kind of issue trying to weigh up, as will said, what is really at stake and focusing on it, And how does that influence our collective behaviour? Because this is a collection thing. You know, we need a large number of Australians to behave as a community, nationally, and then locally. Because what's at stake is lives in the short term and our economic, social and emotional well-being in the long term.
2: I think I want to say to Australians that, yes, we've got this we can do this, I see so much creativity and innovation um, in people as they find ways to support themselves and each other and invent new ways of being connected and of communicating. And um, what I really hope that we do is instead of focusing in a loss frame way, on the things that have gone wrong and on who to blame, that we give ourselves a lot of opportunity to use this as a chance to invest in culture, to make the arts more central in our lives, to remain connected to our families, singing around, singing the Messiah with the YouTube in the background, um, talking to our colleagues more often overseas, being able to use the skills we gain in this time um, to bring us through a healthy recovery in the months to come.
0: That's great. Look, it's really nice to um, finish by touching down on some practically oriented sort of human-sized suggestions for how we can uh, reorient in these unprecedented times. Um, A comment has come through from a listener who loved Julie's suggestion of a communicator-in-chief, thought that was a very um, fantastic idea. Um, We've also been in a very, very small way uh, demonstrating, I think, some adaptability and resilience in the face of difficulties. Uh, Nick Enfield had crashed to Zoom um, and had to exit unexpectedly uh, in the middle of our our panel discussion. Um, But can I thank uh, Nick Enfield, Claire Hooker, Agnieszka Taimula, uh, Julie Lesk, and Ian Hickey um, for being a great panel here uh, today. Um, Thanks for the audience comments, Um, And good luck with the future.
2: Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.